Welcome to our podcast. We're a mother-daughter duo with a twist. I'm Taya, and I was adopted. And I'm Roz, her birth mom. I went on a search at the age of 36, and I found her. Listen in as we come together to unpack the layers of our journey. Well, welcome, Rebecca. I'm so glad that you accepted my invitation to join us today on our podcast. Our, um, our paths actually crossed when we were at the Adoption Knowledge Conference, and I was able to attend your breakout session, which was entitled Adoptees and Eating Disorders, Clinical Considerations and Lessons from Lived Experience. And I'm so glad that I attended that session because it has led to the opportunity to have you here today on our podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was really touched that the session had an impact on you. And I'm excited to be able to dive deep again on the same things today. Yes, definitely. Yes, Ross. So how are you doing today, Ross? I'm doing great. And before we started, I was telling you that I was up a few times during the night thinking of food. So isn't that interesting, specifically crab legs, because I've been kind of craving that. <laughs> but but it's like, oh, that's so interesting. We're going to be talking about food and our relationship to food. So I might ask you, what does it mean when you <laughs> crave crab legs and is it protein <laughs> so anyway we'll get into that hopefully during our podcast today yeah. thank you for joining us of course oh, i'm excited love it <laughs> yes there's got to be a parallel there right <laughs> yeah so let's start with the basics so kind of kind of talk us through first kind of your connection to the adoption constellation, whatever you are comfortable kind of giving us as part of your story, we'll lead from that. Absolutely. So um, I'm Rebecca. I'm a domestic infant, same race adoptee, and I've always known that I was adopted. Um, I joke that my parents must have whispered it in my ear all the time as a baby because My mom uh, was an adoption social worker for my entire life, and my dad is a divorce lawyer. So um, adoption and foster care and CPS and all of those things were just a very normal part of our dinnertime conversation. So I didn't really think a lot about it. Um, I just sort of, it was sort of just like a fact, like, my eyes are green and I wear a size, shoe, size 8 shoe and I'm adopted. Um, it wasn't until my later 20s that I started having some more thoughts about it. And my mom, um, my adoptive mom shared uh, a birth history with me, um, which was a, a lot of information and it, it was overwhelming. And at that point, I decided to try to find my biological mom and used a confidential intermediary okay. to do that. And mm-hmm. um, we exchanged a couple letters, but uh, the way that I look at it now is my, my brain and my body was not ready to explore that. And so I really didn't feel anything when, when we connected um, and ended up just essentially ghosting her. Unfortunately, after we had exchanged a couple letters, I just never wrote back, um, which I now know was very painful for her. And I understand. um, I understand why, because uh, there was no explanation. Um, And it wasn't until I was 30 and into therapy and came across something. um, Someone was talking about adoption on Instagram. And I thought to myself, why have I never looked up anything about adoption on on being an adopted person on Instagram? And I came across a post by Anne Heffron that said adoption is trauma. And being that I'm an eating disorder dietitian and was also working in a um, trauma treatment recovery center with people that were um, healing from PTSD and eating disorders, I was like, whoa, I never knew that. 
<laughs> yeah. And that opened up the whole, um, honestly, just a whole new world for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh my gosh. Very interesting. Right. Like, I think the thing that stood out to me is when you said that you now looking back, recognize that maybe at that time when you first learned more of the detail of your birth story, that your body and brain were not ready. Right. The system wasn't ready yet to take in all that comes with that, because you know, even if I connect to um, my story with Roz, there's a parts of what I've shared in previous episodes where I would pick it up and then put it back down, pick it up and put it back down. And it was maybe in a similar thought process. There was only so much at that time that my system could probably that you could take, take in. in and digest mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. be able to kind of, you know, work through. So that part of what you shared in your story um, made such a connection. The other part that made an interesting connection is I also believe too that our lived experience as well sets us up for things. So it's interesting that like you said, you were placed, you were working in a place that addressed PTSD and eating disorders, not yet fully taking that in from your own personal story, but your life, in a sense, set you up for that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I believe that very, very strongly. And um, in some ways, I feel that my journey to become a registered dietitian was all a setup to get me into the field of of mental health and eating disorders to get me to a place where I could go into therapy myself to get me to the place that I am today, which is much more fully awoken to my own story. Yes. Yes. Again, that resonates so significantly for me too, in my journey of becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Any thoughts that come to mind for you, Roz? Based on what Rebecca shared so far? I feel, yeah, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in because I'm the adoptive per I'm the birth mom birth parent mm-hmm. and so I don't know what it feels like to be adopted mm-hmm. I don't even know if I would feel the same way as you two because something tells me that I probably would have been told at a young age and it would have just been a normal flow. But sometimes it's not. It's up and down, like you guys said. So I feel like I'm on the outside looking in mm-hmm. and really wanting to learn more from you guys as far as nutrition, health, body image, uh, how food translates to who we are and why we are Mm -hmm. because you know there's people that are overweight and they say I've always been this way I've never eaten properly but how does food develop into a relationship with the kind of person that we are yeah yeah, so I'm here to learn from you Rebecca because I never put it together Mm-hmm. It yeah. it's something that I feel this is going to be a definite learning experience for me today. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love your excitement and open mindedness. Yeah, yes. definitely. So yeah, so let's kind of take it from that, and you know, sharing maybe how did we kind of move into the realm of becoming a registered dietitian? Yeah, I. Um, I was living in New York City, and I had just started a new job out of college, and I really wanted to make friends. And one of my coworkers said, hey, do you want to join the gym? And I've never been someone who really enjoyed exercise <laughs> or working out. I just mm-hmm. really wanted to hang out with her. So we started going to the gym. And once you're in the gym, 
there is just a whole different culture that you're exposed to around exercise and health. And I, I got very into it. And I started going to classes all the time. And then I started running. And then I got into doing 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons. And then I joined a running club. And eventually I became my, my identity and my, my hobbies really were nutrition and health and fitness. And I was feeling very unfulfilled in my, my day job. Um, and while I was at work, I was thinking about what am I going to eat later and what, what workout am I going to do and all this stuff. And um, to everyone on the outside, it, it looked very healthy. Like I was now a super healthy person. And mm-hmm. um, for me, I debated, do, do I want to be a chef or do I want to be a registered dietitian? Do I want to go into food journalism? I looked at all the choices mm-hmm. and I said, well, being a registered dietitian seems like it will be the most sturdy and stable path. And I thought at the time that I had figured out the hack, you know, really people just need, this is me saying sort of sarcastically, people just need to know that they need to eat more fruits and vegetables and exercise more and they'll be healthier. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was um, really what my, my graduate school admissions essay was about, about how I had Uh figured out this, um, I had done this in my own life. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to help other people do it. And um, it was a journey of unlearning a lot of that black and white information about nutrition and letting some of my obsession go that by the time I graduated with, from my internship and by the time I took the RD exam, I no longer looked at health through that um, lens of being the smallest person possible or, or being the the right weight and looked Mm -hmm. at it more holistically. And that's what Mm -hmm. led me to the field of mental health and eating disorders. Because if you want to approach nutrition very holistically and incorporate everything that we know about the body and emotion regulation, then the place to do it as a dietitian is in the fields of behavioral nutrition. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, very interesting, the path there. So, so what I'm, what I'm gathering is, yeah, I mean, I think, again, we have similarities. Running was, was, as I used to tagline it, running is my therapy or running was my therapy. It was the, the thing that supported my well-being, right? Um, And, and so when you describe how you did, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks and halves, you know, some of that is part of my story as well. But it's interesting mm. how you describe that over time, you realize that it was a more holistic approach to understanding, which then put on the mental health path to say, hey, we've got to look internally too as to how a person perceives their own sense of self and body image. That also is a key part in understanding how their relationship to food and working out or exercise can be is what I think I'm connecting on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially to like working, my internship was working at the um, Veterans Affairs Hospital here in Los Angeles. And there was an interesting way that they trained us through the nutrition lens, which was, you know, when you're looking at when you're working with a veteran, look at only the nutrition-related issues. So whether it's hypertension or high cholesterol, that's really what you need to focus on. So we wouldn't write down their mental health diagnoses, except that didn't make sense to me because so many of the veterans were diagnosed with PTSD and um, generalized anxiety disorder, um, maybe sometimes bipolar disorder, and, and substance use and misuse. And I... I just, now knowing what I know, I find it really surprising that we didn't have education around what PTSD is because that's my whole orientation about how much the Mm -hmm. nervous system plays into our food behaviors and and how we eat and what we eat. And so um, I think it just speaks to the, the larger systematic problems of the American healthcare system that we're so used to siloing everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, the word that came to mind for me is this: it's very disjointed. Mm-hmm. 
right? Because even what I have evolved and, and incorporated as part of what I do in the therapeutic lens is to address, you know, even the baselines, your sleep, right? Hydration. Um, are you moving, you know, <laughs> and, and how, and what are some of your other diagnoses, if so, around, say, like, like you said, cholesterol, hypertension, or other health-related issues, because all of that plays into one's mental well-being, their emotional well-being. So it's interesting, you know, like you said, these silos that we've kind of established really leaves out conceptualizing a full picture of a person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, so, I'm, I'm go thinking, ahead. Yeah. I'm thinking about when I was young mm -hmm. that I could eat anything in any amount and not gain any weight. And maybe because I was young and there was, you know, PE and other things in school and I walked a lot. So maybe that is why I never gained a lot. I was never as tiny as Taya, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I used to wear like four, five, six size mm -hmm. clothes. And then it seems like as I got older, and this is probably something you'll touch on, Rebecca, that, you know, it seemed like after I turned 50, then, wow, I'm wearing a size 12. Oh, I'm wearing a 14. You know, it's like my size got bigger, but in my mind, I was thinking of this nine size person. And when I looked in the mirror, I didn't see fat, but now I do. I mm -hmm. see this humongous person in the mirror. And when I stand next to Taya, for example, I feel huge, mm -hmm. like a monster next to her mm -hmm. because she's so little. But what does that have to do with our mental image, how we see ourselves, how we reflect on how we were when we were younger and now older, and I'm less active, so that might have something to do with it. But if you could touch on that during the course of our conversation, I would appreciate it. Yeah, and I... <clears throat> I can, I mean, I can touch on it a little bit right now just to say like, yeah. it really is, uh, I think our culture as a whole is doing disservice to all people, but I feel especially women and people who identify as women that we're always expected or expecting to get back to something. Mm -hmm. um, to get back to a smaller version of ourselves or even in the language around, you know, birth, it's like, when is, when is she going to bounce back? You know, when are you going to get your body oh. back? And mm -hmm. the reality is your, well, your body hasn't gone anywhere. It's just different because you've gone through a big transformation and there's also not a lot and you can speak to this more, Roz, because we're, you know, in different generations, but I feel that there's not enough people talking about aging and what healthy aging looks like and feels like and the impact of going through perimenopause and menopause on the body and how that changes your hormones. And it, it in, in changing your hormones, it changes your body composition. And a lot of times people will see, um, uh, a more of a a movement of the body the body composition to focused towards the stomach or the abdomen yes. so like mm -hmm, women mm -hmm. will have more yes. of a belly and mm -hmm. that is fairly normal as we age but it's not normalized meaning that oh. nobody nobody talks about that as being something that is a sign of healthy movement into your older years everyone's still very focused on, well, oh man, I used to be this and I used to be that and I used to be yeah, smaller. Yeah. And it it it's very challenging because you don't have the you don't have society reflecting back to you what you're feeling in your body and then what you're seeing mm -hmm. in the mirror. And then as you look in the mirror, 
a lot of suffering and distress comes from looking at yourself and having your expectation not match what you see. And that's what it sounds like exactly to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. I get oh, it. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Okay. So then if we if we connect all of that and we kind of talk about more specifically um the realm of because I, I, I think there's an aspect here that is very much what we know, like you said, for women, right? But then there is the the subcategory that we place ourselves in and that your practice focuses on is through the lens of an adoptee, right? And how how there may be more than likely, just as there may be as well, um, outside of being adopted, there can be components or factors as part of our being raised and the environment that we're raised in that can impact our relationship to food, our impact, our relationship to how we see ourselves. And so I know that your practice specifically, um, it has like the subcategory where it works. You as well work with adoptees. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe, maybe bring into light now more specifically, what would you say are some of the characteristics or factors that you see in an adopted child that can negatively impact their relationship to food growing up? Yeah. I think the thing that is most, most impactful for adoptees is the, the, acculturative stress or the 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 stress or trauma that comes from trying to fit in with a culture that is different from the one that you were born from and i w- i would say that that is very touched upon um for people who are part of the transracial transracial and transnational adoptee group however and there is still amongst adoptees, what I've learned is there's still a feeling of not fitting in, even if you are raised in a family of the same race. And so when you feel that uncomfiness, there is a desire to conform or be like them as much as possible. And speaking from my own, you know, lived experience, my, both of my, my adoptive parents are, um, very health focused. And so when I was very health focused, that was a big point of connection for all of us. And Mm. my parents were very interested in what I was learning and reading and how much I was working out. And then that was something that we could all bond over. Um, Mm. And if you think about it too, from a body image perspective, you know, you, you know, when you, when you have a body that doesn't come from the bodies of the two people that you live with, there's likely to be a lot of differences. And so mm-hmm. whether your body is larger or smaller or taller or leaner or whatever the case may be, there can be an internal drive to change your body to make it more like theirs. Or in my case, I will say it was more living in a contextless body is hard not knowing, well, is my body supposed to be smaller? Is it supposed to be larger? Is it supposed to be more muscular? I don't have any reference for that. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you don't have a reference, it can be challenging because what, what I do with my clients who struggle with body image and eating who grew up in their biological families is I'll often say, well, let's talk a little bit about your body lineage. And what are the, what are the bodies of your what does the body of your mom look like? And what does the body of your dad look like? And tell me about your cousins and your aunts and uncles. And oftentimes we're able to make connections. Um, And even if someone's really unhappy with their body, there can be a momentary relief of like, yeah, I really don't like my thighs, but my aunt also has those thighs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the thighs of my family. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that piece is is definitely missing for adoptees too. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when I connect to, you know, what you shared about this idea of um, being able to have, I think, the body lineage and to have a mirror in a sense, to have those genetic markers, Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, that part connects with me because that was definitely a struggle for me to see myself in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can see how that can be validating um, for others, even if it does come with its own mixed, you know, kind of feelings, um, especially as a teenager. But I could see how that could be so validating to be able to see yourself in your family line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so where my brain goes next is when you think about, let's, let's kind of dive into this part. When you think about just the idea of kind of nutrition or dealing with um, the clients that you see, maybe help educate us a little bit more on some of the types of disorders that we will see, because I think there is a spectrum, right? Yes. So you, 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 you mentioned, you know, eating disorders are 1000% on a spectrum. And I don't, I I would say I actually don't see a lot of um, clinically diagnosed eating disorders as, as you would, as you would diagnose it in the DSM-5. I would, I would say Mm -hmm. that I see more um, sub subclinical eating disorders or disordered eating, which basically means okay. that the 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 symptoms or the tr- or the traits are there, but they may not meet the full criteria for being diagnosed as such. But that doesn't mean that it's any less distressing or severe for the person's life. And mm-hmm. with adoptees specifically, what I see is um, a lot of difficulty with with self-care and basic nourishment. So one of the things I say is I work with people to to help slow down because a lot of people that I work with are very um, achievement oriented, very, very, very into giving to others and pleasing others and taking care of their family and doing the best job that they can at at work, often to their own detriment, meaning they're not stopping to eat and they're not stopping to um, go to the bathroom or take care of themselves. And maybe that's leading them to, you know, have feelings of overeating in the evening time or feeling like they, they, they're not taking care of their body. Um, what I will say is everyone's experience is different. So it, there is no one disorder that, you know, is more prominent in adoptees. I think everyone, everyone survives in a different way and eating behaviors can become really helpful coping skills and survival skills. And so everyone will, will, will process that differently. And it's helpful to approach or I find it helpful to approach all my clients just with an open mind around what's going on for them. And luckily, as a dietitian, I don't diagnose. So I don't need to worry about putting anybody in a category. I just take I take my clients lead in, in hearing what is really, what is really distressing them and what's um, having an impact on their life and, and going from there. Mm, okay, okay. That's a simple, that's a simple approach, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. because you could without, you know, like you said, you don't have to diagnose, but you could make an assumption when you see that person, if they're overweight, it's like, oh, they probably eat too much sweets or they probably eat too much fatty foods or, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. I'll direct them to avoid this, don't mm-hmm. eat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do, how do you switch from not diagnosing them when you first meet them to just offering the advice that you need to as a nutritionist? Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that brings up a really good point, Roz, around um, just like body weight and size as a marker of health. I don't 
think that that's true. So what, whenever I see a person, I'll just take this group here. I look at all three of us and I can definitively say, I know nothing about your health by looking at your body. Absolutely nothing. Right. Unless I were to do like a nutrition focused Mm -hmm. physical exam and examine your muscles, maybe I could learn something, but I'm never going to judge anyone. I'm never going to pretend to know anything about anyone's health based on their body size, because the reality is that is that, well, one, eating disorders are not weight disorders. So they can happen in anybody of any any person in any body type. Oh, yeah. And also, all of the all of the chronic illnesses and diseases that I help manage happen in all different types of body types. So you you can have hypertension and be really small or you can be really big and you can have diabetes and be really small or you can be really big. And unfortunately in our medical system, I think we've been trained that, that, that certain things are very, very correlated with weight. And it's just really easy to, to get caught up in that, especially when they're always telling us about our BMI and is it, is it normal or is it over or is it too much? But the reality is that BMI is an outdated, antiquated, and racist tool that we should not be using. Um, And that it it Mm. really, that's why I have my own private practice. And that's why I spend 90 minutes in my initial assessment with people, because I need to ask a lot of questions to really understand what's going on with their health. Right. Right. So yes, That's so just wonderful. to clarify, the body mass index, right? The the BMI is equal to the body mass index. That is so interesting to hear you, you know, in a sense, kind of flip it on its head. The perspective that has been such a big part of yes, know, it medical has. community, um, because I do think you're right. When we come back to you know social media and just you know, what we've been exposed to, we can unfortunately make assumptions about people based on their mm-hmm. size. And to be able to, in a sense, you know, remove that and, and see a person and then learn their story. And then through that story, create a conceptualized perspective toward their health or their well-being. Um, and then from there, provide some level of guidance is kind of what I'm hearing is your strategy, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning, you know, of your, of your initial uh, assessment. And I think, you know, again, the fact that you spend a good 90 minutes in the first session says a lot as well, you know, as opposed to the medical community, which, you know, the average is, you know, the first session may be 30 minutes, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so it's very, you know, quick and to the point where, you get to learn the story, the history of a person. Um, and, and they can actually probably, their system, their body can kind of exhale a bit in the session with you because they're not feeling so rushed, mm-hmm. you know, through all of the steps to get to a certain conclusion. Absolutely. Yes. You, you right. nailed it. That's, right. that's what I'm aiming for is helping people um, relax and also inviting them to explore, you know, what would it be like if you sat down for an hour and a half and talked about your relationship with health and food in your body? Most people have never had that much time to do that. And um, it can be relieving or it can be really uncomfortable. And I, and I let I let Mm -hmm. them know, like, you know, we can, we can stretch, we can have a snack break, if anything is too intense, or you don't want to talk about it, we just met, that's okay, too. Just let me know, you know, having my orientation now knowing what I know is um, trauma-informed care and trauma-aware care is my heart. And I need, I, I lead with that in every session. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That brings up something else and then we'll, and then we'll dive into another question. It, it takes me back to when I worked in a practice and the practice um, was very focused on the holistic self and one of the things that um, we incorporated was to have snacks available um, at a, specifically at certain times of the day because we would have kids come in after school, families coming in. And, and one of the things that was 
um, understood is, hey, we've got to help them to regulate. They're coming, they're transitioning from this environment into this environment, and it can be stressful. And they probably didn't have time to get something to eat before they came. So can we have some kind of healthy snacks and have that available in our offices so that clients and invite them to have it? And even if need be, have a snack with them because it allows them to see, hey, it's okay to take care of yourself in this moment. That's a part of therapy in and of itself. So even hearing you kind of say, yeah, you know, if we need to stand up and stretch, if we need to get some water or have a snack while we're in the session, Right. It's a whole new approach to how we address, you know, someone's I health. love that. Yes. So beautiful. Yeah. It's my one of my mottos yeah. is a hungry brain is an anxious brain. And so, you know, yes. you really mm-hmm. you really can't, you know, well, you you and I both know Taya that you have to be regulated and we're aiming for regulation mm-hmm. in our sessions. Obviously not can't always be the case with what we're exploring, but um Definitely, if you're if you're under fueled, you're not going to be in the right headspace to learn and process. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's start with this question next. Then, so then, connecting to the body again, what would you say then are some of the digestive digestive issues that you may encounter with some of your clients? It really depends on a lot of factors, although I will say that um, bloating and constipation and diarrhea are very common. Um, they they have similar etiologies in that if you're if your nervous system is dysregulated, as we were just talking about, what happens is your your blood flow is literally directed away from your digestive system and to your your outer limbs and your muscles so that you can fight or flee from the threat. So if all of the blood flow and energy is being diverted away from your digestive system, it can't do what it's normally meant to do. And your digestive tract is one long muscle that really thrives on mm. consistency and regularity and calmness in order to digest. So what I thought, what I see with a lot of my clients who um, are anxious is that they oftentimes will have um, cramping and just difficulty with feeling, I, I don't can't think of a better word, but feeling good while they're digesting, um, having difficulty pooping. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes from mm-hmm being anxious uh, in general around many things, but also being anxious about eating. Am I eating too much? Am I eating not enough? Am I eating the wrong things? And so if you imagine having that blood flow directed away from your gut when you're running away from a bear is really helpful. But if it's happening, you know, three plus times a day when you're sitting down to eat and you're feeling so anxious and worried, even you start to feel anxious and worried that you're going to have digestive symptoms then you will have digestive symptoms because of that anxiety and because of how that connects to your gut. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Mike dropped. Ah. I'm thinking about my gut. <laughs> my gut plays tricks on me. Ah. I have issues. Yes. And it's like before I sit down and eat, I'm thinking, is this going to go down? normally or is is it going to affect me abnormally and i worry about that because i don't want to have an upset stomach i don't want it to be gurgling and 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 feeling bloated and and wondering you know how is it going to end when mm-hmm. i finish of eating course. this meal mm-hmm. so i'm causing myself some stress in my digestive system just thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. And I don't yeah. I don't I don't mean to say that and for you to feel blame or shame around your worry and anxiety because it's so normal, right? Of course you don't want to feel bloated and of course you don't want to have an upset stomach. You just want to feel good while you're digesting. And that, you know, whether right. you're an adoptee or not, I think that's 
something so important that you brought up, Roz, is the power of going into mealtimes as calm and grounded as you can possibly be. And for you, maybe those maybe those thoughts will continue to pop up. And if you wanted to, you could practice doing something calming before you eat to help your digestive system okay. prepare itself and also to remind yourself that there actually isn't a threat, that you're going to be okay, that your body knows what to do and and see if any of that calming or grounding practice makes a difference. Thank you. That's good to You're know. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does connect for me too because I have to consciously remind myself to, depending on, um, you know, what's going on in the day, you know, I try to create breaks specifically in my schedule where I'm not rushing. Um, but then, you know, there is that sense where I, you know, connected with what you said about how our bodies can kind of hold stress. And if I'm holding a certain amount of stress and then I go into eating and then I eat quickly, which I think mm -hmm. is a huge thing, right? Is that we don't necessarily into, I think the word is like intuitive eating, you know, or even being uh, the mindset that I should eat without any major noise or other activities, multitasking, just sit with myself and eat, you know, is an opportunity for me to slow down my digestive system and to feel calm while I'm eating. But I think we are so accustomed to running through food and not right. really taking the time to even, you know, when I think of that word again, intuitively, what is it that my body is craving? You said earlier, Roz, that you were craving <laughs> crab legs, right? So maybe something yeah. in your body is saying there's something from that type of food that your body is needing or wanting in that moment, right? But mm -hmm. I think, right, sometimes we don't listen to our bodies enough to say, what do I really need? And then maybe what you could speak to as I say that out loud, Rebecca, is, um, is being enough, being aware enough of what's going on in our body that sometimes we may be reacting as well, you know, because of the stress. And so we grab this kind of food item. Whereas when we really take the time to connect with what's going on in our system, we realize, ah, actually a better response would be that I give it this type of food and find out that that actually is more helpful than me choosing this thing mm -hmm. out of reacting. So maybe there's a way you can respond to that. Absolutely. Process. Just share. Yeah. Like <laughs> cravings. It, it really reminds yeah. me of um, the, for people that are, for, for any human, but especially people that are su suffering from complex PTSD is that it comes with a lot of sensations in the body, many of which are, distressing or overwhelming. And so as you said, reaching for food can actually be really regulating and soothing when you're having these somatic experiences that don't feel good in your body and you don't have you don't yet have a robust toolbox of things to select from in order to feel better. So there there to your thing, to your point about reacting, I think a lot of it comes down to whether you're in therapy or nutrition counseling, understanding what your body is feeling and practicing getting to know your body better and interoception, and then experimenting with what feels good or doesn't feel good for people that maybe are reaching for for food, whether they're whatever whatever label you want to put on it maybe they maybe they have binge eating disorder or maybe they they're just eating emotionally and they don't like it we can explore well what does it feel like to try a different tool or what does it feel like to to eat that bag of doritos but looking at it through the lens of this is a helpful survival skill as opposed to beating yourself up about it the whole time and and sitting deeply in your shame um, oh, there's a lot of different ways we okay. can look at it, but I do think people, I do think that I 
I tend to look at eating reactively or eating to self-soothe or even to numb. I look at it through the lens of curiosity and trying to understand what is it that your body is asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with the example of the crab legs, yes, it could be that your body is asking for a specific nutrient in crab legs, or maybe it could be that you're you're remembering a time in your life when you had crab legs with certain people and you want that feeling of community. Or maybe you're feeling like you're having anxiety and yeah. you want something to do with your hands, right? Cracking crab legs is tactile and it's it's crunchy and it's exciting and sometimes <laughs> butterflies and juices fly and like there can be a million reasons. <laughs> why you might want something and it doesn't always have to do with like oh your body is missing magnesium it could be a a thousand other Mm -hmm. emotional reasons or other I will say like there's like there's the physical the biological and then also the emotional and also the sensory and it can be any of those things Okay. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned magnesium. I was just throwing out a random nutrient. Oh, okay. I thought mm-hmm. crabs had magnesium versus I, potassium. I, I am not going to lie to you. I do something. not remember the specific nutrients in crab legs. <laughs> I have to look that one up. Yeah, I'll look it up. But you, but Raj, you seem to, you know, kind of your eyes kind of went big when you when you thought about it from the sense of it possibly being connected to family, community, and and yeah, you it's know, a nostalgia, big, big family, yeah, gathering mm-hmm. around crab legs, right, Taya? Yes, <laughs> that was part of my introduction into the family. Yeah, is especially you know, New Year's the, Eve. So yeah, yeah, the the crab legs, the gumbo, and all of that, and I'm like. Oh my God, my body is just <laughs> awakened right now because this is exactly oh my what I need. Well, what's so interesting about <laughs> right, right. crabs specifically is that I also have a connection to crabs because I grew up in Baltimore. So that that Maryland, you know, we're known Ooh, for crabs okay. in Old Bay. Yeah. But I grew up Jewish and we kept oh, kosher. Yeah. So okay. crabs are not kosher. Oh. But okay. I grew up in an area where mm. most people weren't Jewish. And so it was very common to have, you know, um, what do they call it? A crab crab boil or like you get a bunch of crabs and you put it on the, yeah. Yeah, it on the paper the and everyone's you know, crabbing yeah. and hacking. And I was yes. just like, yeah, and that looks like a lot of fun. But like there, that was one area. Mm-hmm. This actually doesn't have anything to do with being adopted. It just has to do with being Jewish. But like feeling left out from that yeah. experience because we didn't eat crabs. And I wasn't, it wasn't until I was 18 that I decided, I okay, I'm going to try my first crab. And it was, um, you know, it's, it's different when you're learning it later in life. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I agree for me too. Right. I mean, because it was much later, it was in my adult years when I really, immerse myself in like what it's like to eat the the foods of Louisiana yeah and understanding the language around some of the it was yeah I mean you're right it's different when you are an adult learning something versus it being part Mm -hmm. of your childhood upbringing yeah yeah Yeah. interesting okay so this is where my brain goes next so one of the things that I also recognized um, with you through looking at your website, is that you had, you had mentioned a quote specifically from an adoptee who is a well-known writer in the adoptee community, Anne Hefron, and you shared about the quote, um, adoption is trauma. But there was actually another um, quote that I saw specifically on your website, and I pulled it, and I thought, hmm, this really resonates with me. So I kind of want to unpack it with you and have you give us a little bit of perspective as to why you picked that particular quote. So here's the quote. When you are relinquished and adopted, you often abandon trust in the body and rely on the wild stories your brain feeds you in order to survive this new world that so profoundly confuses your being. This makes you a sort of selfless robot. This is not Mm. the good life. 
This is Survival 101. Joy arrives when you plant yourself behind your eyes and stay there. Wow. By Anne Heffron. So, yeah, even as I reread that, you know, there's some thoughts that came to mind. But tell us, Rebecca, why was that a quote that that was, you know, resonating with you that you placed it on your website? (sighs) Very powerful to hear you read it out loud after reading it to myself for so long. Mm. There, when you're, when you are adopted, there is a major disconnection from your story and your biology and your, your ancestors. And I think for many adoptees that gets manifested in a disconnection from the self because before we were able to process or talk, something really intense happened to us and we couldn't make sense of it. And in many ways, you know, my, my outlook is that we're, we're trying to survive from that initial shock. And I conceptualize eating disorders as disorders of disconnection. I, I'd like to say to my clients that sometimes you might feel like just a walking head, like you're totally disconnected to your body and you're just really focused on the, the, you know, your thoughts and the logic because there's lots of other stuff happening down here in the body that's just too intolerable to be with. And um, I also think I also talk about eating disorders as emotion converters. So if you think about all the things that happen in an adoptee's life, you are you're you're you end up feeling very disconnected from yourself and you're you're moving through the world. Maybe it's using food behaviors to cope or maybe not, but you're just trying to get through this experience that you haven't really been able to make sense of. And what I think Anne speaks to in her quote is we have to confront it in order to move through it. And we do that by coming home to ourselves and and practicing being grounded. And as I said before, learning tools and skills to manage not only our emotions, but maybe the somatic experiences that we're having. And once we have a more robust toolbox, we don't, we might not need to rely on something like binge eating or restricting or purging anymore. And um, also eating disorders suck the joy out of life. And, and when you're struggling with your eating, everything else in your life tends to suffer and get smaller. So for a lot of my clients, it's very cool to watch as their world gets bigger and bigger and more joy fills it up. Wow. 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 I love that. Yeah, yeah. Something that I connected and I'm wondering if part of what you're you're sharing, when I read the line that says, Joy arise when you plant yourself behind your eyes and stay there, is I'm thinking that it's like that's part of where I ground myself and I look at things through the lens that's and what's in front of me versus the avoidance that I may do with other behaviors. Sometimes I have to plant myself behind my eyes and take on the reality of what is in front of me and learn how to ground myself, regulate myself in the moment. Um, Sometimes being able to Mm -hmm. sit in the emotion. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that's part of how then joy comes because I think we, as I say that, I think sometimes we don't allow ourselves to, to trust our bodies and our minds enough that we can withstand a lot of different emotions and, and such, right? And if we, if we can learn to trust ourselves and sit in those emotions, we realize that we can ride it, right? And we can come through it and it can be then a learning Mm -hmm. point for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what I was saying with eating disorders being emotion converters because if you have a really overwhelming Mm -hmm. experience, most often when you're when you're little, 
and you don't feel um, seen or held in that experience and you don't get the tools that you need from your caregivers, then that it kind of gets stuck and you're not able to process that experience, but then you're not able to even imagine processing future hard things. And sometimes that's when, you know, an eating disorder Mm -hmm. can come in and and just make it easier. I know for me, being obsessed with running and nutrition and health, I mean, I I didn't have time to think about anything else except for my running plan and my eating plan. Mm -hmm. And then once that was done, the next thing I was going to eat and the next thing, next time I was going to run. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to get us to our wrap up, one of the there was one more question that actually based on what you just shared that that I want to ask. How how would you maybe speak to adoptive parents of adoptees as to maybe things that they can do to support their child in understanding um kind of their relationship to their body image. Are there are there ideas that maybe you have, I'm pretty sure you do, of when you kind of team up with the parent even as to how to support mm-hmm. the child in yeah, this Yeah, I just, I just started doing a lot more parent nutrition coaching for adoptive parents. So this has definitely been on my mind. Oh. The first thing I will say is that the most important thing you can do as an adoptive parent is look at your own relationship with food first because it whatever you have going on it is very very likely seeping into what you're modeling and saying to your child and so if you feel like you have a, a tumultuous or a difficult relationship with food or even your body image then the best thing that you can do first is to seek support around that the second thing i will say is mm. that being grounded and regulated is the foundation of everything. So let's say you have a, a your adopted child who maybe is having some food behaviors that you think are problematic or that you're worried about. If you're bringing a lot of energy and distress and anxiety to meal times, that is going to be felt. And it's hard to offer regulation mm-hmm. or co-regulation when your own body is not settled. So one of the things that I that I work on with parents is, first of all, understanding what's normal in childhood nutrition, and, you know, whether people are growing along, uh, growing as they should be, for lack of a better word. Um, And also Mm -hmm. helping parents soothe their own anxiety, so that when children come to them with anxieties around, well, you know, I, I I don't feel right, or I don't like my body, or I feel fat, or something like that, that that mom or dad is able to approach that conversation in a way that feels calm. Because for a lot of children, and I will say a lot of adult adoptees, having parents respond in a way that is um, panicky, or, or um, dismissive mm. or um, mm-hmm. just kind of trying to avoid it because of their own discomfort makes such a big impact on on how they're able to handle those situations. Um, and I think that is my number one piece of advice: is we just can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. Like, and we, and especially mm-hmm. if you're the parent mm-hmm. of an adoptee, avoiding it and pretending like it doesn't exist. <laughs> or not addressing it will will do yeah. more harm than than you mm-hmm. feel that it will. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. true. Oh wow. Any questions that came up for you, Roz, as we're coming to a close? <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> when I was little, there were so many foods I did not like. And I gave my mother a hard time. And I'm going to eat that. That looks nasty. That smells bad or funny. And I don't want to <laughs> eat it. So instead of forcing me to eat it, she would say things like, okay, then I guess you won't be eating dinner tonight. You could go to bed hungry. 
And I had to sit and think, do I want to feel the hunger pains while I'm trying to sleep? Or do I want to eat this <laughs> nasty food? So I started thinking, <laughs> I started thinking when you were talking about foods and emotions, it's like, well, what if you don't like it? You just absolutely refuse to eat those turnips or mm. those oxtails or whatever it was that just looked funny on your plate and you didn't want to eat it. How do you, you might not call it a disorder. You might just call it a finicky yeah. kid. It's a great question. Uh, is that something? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could bring up. I think as adults, we often forget, especially with food, that everything with kids is a new experience. And you need a lot of practice with eating and with tasting things to be able to eat new things and to tolerate the experience of having surprising things enter your mouth that maybe you haven't had before. I think about it mm. like this. If I have not grown up in a culture that eats fish eyes. So if someone put a fish head in front of me and was like, eat that fish eye. It's normal. That's what we eat. You're going to like it. Try it. Mm -hmm. I would be understandably so very um, cautious because I don't know what that's going to feel like in my mouth. I have no reference for that. Well, think about that mm -hmm. in relationship to yeah. a cherry tomato. Most people have, you know, a neutral experience of cherry tomatoes. But if you're a kid, sometimes the cherry tomato is sweet. Sometimes it's sour. Sometimes it bursts. Sometimes it has a weird funky taste. Sometimes the seeds are big. Sometimes they're small. Mm. There's so much variability in food. And all that to say, back to your question, Roz, if your child is saying, I don't like this, I don't want to eat this, I totally understand from the parental perspective, not wanting to be a short order cook, not wanting to make more food and giving the option of like, well, you either eat it or you go hungry. But that that is creating a, a little bit of a power play where you're forcing your child to go against, to choose between two discomforts. And it kind of, I think, brings up mm -hmm. a feeling of not being safe at mealtime. So if you have a kid that's learn, learning to like new foods or maybe yeah. only accepts a couple foods, I would continue to offer those foods that are, are um, maybe not preferred or maybe you know they're not ready to try it yet but also alongside of foods that they do prefer. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're cooking mm. turnips for the whole family and oxtails, but, you know, you, you only like mac and cheese or pasta, maybe you can offer, well, there is pasta for you and there is, you know, these other things. Eat what you like. You don't have to eat anything, but this is what's available. So I would, I would modify that example a little bit just to say that oh. for kids – it's much more helpful to always have something preferred available to them so that they can still trust that you're going to feed them. Mm. And still eat something yeah, instead of nothing. Yeah, and at the end nothing. of the day, like right. the choice to eat is always up to the child. So, you know, you can, you're, you can say it's dinner time and your, your kid says, I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. That's okay. But we're all going to sit down here and, and have dinner together. You can eat or you don't have to eat. And being calm okay. while you wow, while you say that's it. really good. Yeah, with it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Peace. Yeah. Instead of I, I just about I've it. had yeah. so many okay. clients in my, oh my office. God, that's who, what we do. Um, were labeled picky eaters when they were younger and it just became like reinforced, reinforced. You're like Rebecca doesn't like eating. She's so picky. She's so mm. hard to serve. Blah blah blah. And that that becomes a cycle that ends up self-perpetuating yeah, and causing um, a, a lot more struggles to learn how to eat normally as an adult. Oh, wow. Very, Very good. good. Wow. So, so another yeah. thing that you um, probably got a chance to see a little bit as part of our notes is we've got this thing now where we, we also do a signature question that we posed to our guest at the end. So of course I wanna include you in that as well, Rebecca, in this. So here's the, here's the question. So what does I found her mean to you? It's an open-ended question 
Um, what comes to mind when you think of I found, I found me her? I found the me that was hiding uh-huh. for so yeah. long, hiding oh. behind wanting to be good, behind wanting to um, do well and achieve more. And through my own healing journey and my work as a dietitian, when I read that question, I just thought, yeah, that's what I'm working towards, finding me. Her is me. And um, I, I, mm-hmm. I work with majority women. So I would say that that is applicable to so many people's journeys of like, we're all searching for ourselves. And I hope to support people in um, uncovering and setting aside some of the things that really don't belong to you and maybe belong to society or other people so that you can really find yourself again. You can, you can find her again. Oh, oh that's that. wonderful. Thank yeah, you. This is really good. I have learned so much. And the one thing too, that I think also that's important to note when, when you're doing an interview with someone is, you know, the, the way your system feels, way your body feels when you're doing the interview. And there is a, such a calmness that I think also is part of what resonated when I was at the adoption knowledge uh, training with you is that there's such a calmness in your in your speech and your tone and demeanor that also I think allows for my system for sure to feel really good about what we've done today. So thank you yes, for that. I do too. Yeah, yes, thank just you. It's a pleasure to chat with you, yeah. and I really appreciate all of your inquisitive and fun questions. It was delightful.